Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with three-time World Series champ and Hall of Famer Tim Raines. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a seven-time All-Star, three-time World Series champ, and in 2017, he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Raines. Rock, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Brett. Tell you what, I'm talking to the last player not to have an ear flap and I'm jealous because I grew up in that. I grew up in that generation. You know, when you were, you know, I was a little kid when you broke into the big leagues, and I was hanging out in Philly with with Pete and uh, Bake McBride and and Luzinski, and they're all wearing the the skull cap. And I'm going, I love the skull cap. Right. I, I never got that opportunity though. Right. That is awesome. I remember those days. And and. When when they made it a rule where the rest of us had to wear the ear flap, did you even consider it, or you just said, I'm rolling with this for the rest of my career? Well, what happened was um, when they made the rule, I was uh, grandfathering it. I had enough time in the league by then that I could, like, I was grandfathering in the old rule. So everyone else had to wear flap. But by me being so old, I didn't have to. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a, like a badge of honor. Like, no, you guys, you guys need to wear the flap, but I don't. I've been around, kid. No, I, I see it. I, I think, and plus, you've been hitting like that for so long uh, to all of a sudden have to wear that. It's almost like you know when you go to the minor leagues on a rehab assignment, and they've got the double ear flap. You know, that's what everybody's got to wear down there. And, and when you're used to that one ear flap, put the double ear flaps on, kind of weird. Yeah, but you know what? When I first came in, I didn't wear the double ear flap. I had two helmets. So, you're right. So, you had the one with the left ear flap, then the right for a switch hitter. Right. So, I was like, I was, you know, the, the only problem with that is making sure I had both helmets in the helmet right. So, if I went up left-handed and then bring in another another picture, now I'm have to go find my other helmet. So, right. I, you know what? I, I just got tired of doing that. And um, so I, I came up with this idea of having a regular helmet, not the skull cap, but a regular helmet and just cut off the ears. So I would have the backing of the helmet, but the ear flap just wasn't in. Right. So it looked That's- like a regular helmet. It wasn't a skull cap, and uh, it it, uh, it did what I needed for it to do. It worked out pretty good. Uh, yeah. Born in Sanford, Florida, that's that's where they they got that highlight. It used to be there. I think they. I don't think they have highlight there anymore. Yeah. But it, it it's close not, to. Not uh, yeah, I lived in Windermere for a while, so Sanford's right down the road. Okay. Uh, you were one of seven kids. Uh, you had a couple mm-hmm. brothers, real athletic family. Your dad, a couple brothers played in the minor leagues. Uh, tell me about Rock Reigns as a kid growing up. Well, like you said, I was of the boys. I was next to the youngest. 
So I had three older brothers, and uh, two of the three were great athletes. I mean, not just baseball players, but they played baseball, basketball, football, soccer, you name it. They were pretty good at all of those sports. And I was just one of the young bucks that tried to hang with, with my bigger brothers. Uh, so they kind of showed me the way. I mean, they were good. Like, like I said, they were great athletes. Um, I wanted to compete with them, you know, and, uh, there are times when, you know, I started hanging with the big boys and I wasn't old enough, but they didn't allow me to do that. <laughs> you know, I have like all big brothers, you know, the little brothers do anything. Um, but I, I, I did as much as I could to try to, you know, be around them, see the things that they were doing, and, and try to compete with them. And I felt like if I could compete with them, I could compete with anybody. So uh, that was the way I looked at it as a, as a young kid, was, uh, you know, being one of the young pups that uh, was trying to grow up uh, as fast as I could so I can hang with the boys. You're a football player, track and field, baseball. Did you have a Did you have a favorite team, favorite player in any sport growing up? Because I know you're a big time football player. But uh, who was your team as a kid? Well, as a kid, uh, football. Uh, it was the Dallas Cowboys. As a matter of fact, uh, my first favorite player in football was. Uh, uh, Hayes for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Lester. He was, a, he was a track guy. He was a track guy. Uh, probably one of the fastest guys in the world. And uh, he played football. He was a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. So um, I started following him. And then as I got into football more, uh, O.J. Simpson was, was my favorite player. And I used to call myself Little Juice. Uh, I wore 32, uh, the running back, and uh, I tried to pattern my game after his, and uh, it worked out pretty good. I'd say so. And did I know? All right, this true or false? 100 scholarship offers to you at a high school. True. And that and that was mainly Actually, for football. Had, was that mainly for football or both? Mainly for football. Actually, uh, I think I had one offer in baseball. Wow! So that that's and, to me, it's it's mind boggling. You got this many people chasing you to to go play football. What? Well, obviously, I mean, you chose you chose the right sport. But at that time, when you've got that kind of kind of attention coming at you. Did you just prefer baseball or were you thinking long-term? Do you ever think about playing both? Do you ever think about doing a bow or a, or a Dion? Well, at first, at first I, you know, I looked at it. I was like, okay. And this was my uh, decision I made was because of this. I said, okay, I'm a seventh. I was a young senior. So I was 17. And I felt like, I could have went either way in football, so I figured if I started, if I signed to play baseball, 
and things worked out in the first two, three years, then baseball was what it, what it would be. But if things didn't work out, say, I started in uh, my first year in baseball and I had a tough time, I probably would have said, okay, this is too tough for me. I'm going to go play football. But the way it all worked out was I went to rookie ball, had a good year of rookie ball, skipped two, uh, I skipped high A ball, went to, to high, I mean, I skipped low A ball, went to high A ball, and from there to double A. So I was like, things were moving on a fast track. So by the time it started moving on a fast track, I started, okay, maybe baseball is my sport. Uh, and I never looked back. I said, okay, a year after the second year, my third year, I was called up to the big leagues in September. So um, my football explorations had dissipated, and there I was um, on the threshold of, of making it to the major leagues. Actually, I had made it, jumped on a call up. Next year, I didn't make the team out of spring training. But I got called up in the middle of the season and was in the big league from that point on. So, um, you know, thinking about it, if if things wouldn't work that way, I'd probably end up being a football player. Where, if you were going to go anywhere, where where were you going to go? If you were going to say, "All right, I'm making a football decision," what college were you? Because that's back in the day. You probably had coaches out in your front lawn, when one going in to try to charm you, and then the other one waiting for him to leave. Lou Holtz would come in next. That hundred scholarships. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty. Go ahead. Well, I was going. I was a big. I was a big Gator fan. Okay, makes sense. Uh, Florida. So I was going to go University of Florida. Uh, Charlie Pell was there at the time. And um, I felt like, uh, you know, since I had started playing baseball, I would have had to go there, walk on, make a team. And uh, that was my thinking. And, uh, but, you know, in hindsight, looking back, I'm kind of glad that we ended up. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Thanks, Brett. The moment we've been waiting for since September is finally here. In honor of the big game, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56, is giving new customers 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in New York, meaning you can bet from almost a third of the country. If Sportsbook isn't in your state yet, play DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contests for Super Bowl 56. New customers can get a free shot at a $1 million top prize with their first deposit. Now that is my kind of deal. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, and get 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. 
21 plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for full list of requirements and state specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. In Tennessee, call or text the TN Redline 1 800 889 9789. In Connecticut, call 888 7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877 8 HOPENY or or text H-O-P-E-N-Y-467-369. And now back to my interview with Tim Raines, 1977, your fifth-round pick in the Montreal Expos. Yep. Talked about your minor league, got to the big leagues in 79 briefly, uh, mainly as a pinch runner. And this is what blew me away, getting ready for this rock. Uh 1980. I had no clue. Tim Raines, our, our, you know, our paths crossed in our careers. You know, you were kind of at the end of yours when I was starting mine, but I never pictured Tim Raines as a second baseman. And that jumped out at me. It said in 1980, he came up as a second baseman. I started laughing. I said, I want to see rock take it. I want to, I want to see you make the pivot. I tell you what, I wasn't that bad. You know what? I wasn't that bad, but when I got called up, there was a guy by the name of Rodney Scott. I remember Rodney. Great defender. Great defender. Second base short. So I could play the infield. I had the best hands I've ever seen. So it was kind of up to me to beat him out. But I knew I didn't have as good a hands as he did. And, and he was a similar type player. You know, fast, twitch hitter, uh, stole a lot of bases. Didn't have the power that I had, but I mean, as far as defending, he was he was he was heads heads above me as far as you know playing defense at the major league level. But I was lucky that I was I was able to to be on a team that had that kind of where you know instead of putting me at second base. Moving to the outfield, because I played outfield uh, in high school. So it wasn't like I had never played the outfield before. But um, I played minor league, second base, all through the minor league. So my first time playing the outfield was my my rookie season in 81 uh, for the Expos. I went to spring training. I, I started trying to figure out the position in spring training. And when the season opened, I was opening day starter in, in left field, and I had never played a single game in the big leagues in the outfield. So that was where it all started for me. And thank God, because I felt like I was a better outfielder than I would have been a better second baseman. So it all worked out. In right. the you come up, Dick Williams is the manager. And, uh, you know, this – you got to bear with me here because this is my childhood. And I, you know, all the guys that I have on the show, I always kind of get in my sweet in those seventies. That was kind of, you know, me growing up, dad was playing for the Phillies at the time. So th- that's yep. kind of my favorite time. You know, I, I really enjoyed my, my career in the big leagues and, and my 14 years, but some of my fondest memories come from my childhood and watching you guys. And especially in those seventies, when those Phillies and, and late in the late seventies, Phillies and, and Montreal were having some battles up there. But I remember, you know, Crow Marty and, and uh, the kid behind the plate Carter and, and Ellis Valentine. Yep. I remember Ellis and obviously mm-hmm. Andre Dawson, who's, who's a big part of your life, Steve Rogers and Bill Lee. Uh, yep. When you first got to the big leagues, 
and we all we all usually have a story. Uh, we come up. Who took the who took a young Tim Raines under their wing? Who who kind of mentored you a little bit when you get there? Did you have someone like that? Well, when I first got there in '79, you know, like you said, I was just a pinch runner, so I was like in awe of of just being there. I remember the when I got called up, I went to Wrigley Field. It was the first big league ballpark that I was part of in uh, in the major league. So I think I remember this like it was yesterday. I remember going to the outfield. Doing batting practice and just being so nervous. And this is batting practice. This isn't even a game. Being so nervous of being in the outfield, taking fly balls from major league hitters who were hitting bullets all over the place. And 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 I couldn't even catch a fly ball out there because I wasn't. <laughs> I was so used to being a second base, but now I'm in the outfield. But not only that. You know, Dawson, like you said, Valentine, Carter, these guys are hitting bullets all over the ballpark. And I'm just afraid I'm going to get hit in the head because I feel like I'm in a dream. And, uh, but, you know, when I first got started, no one really came up to me to, to try to mentor me. And what happened was, Andre, I remember watching Andre and Gary get prepared for games. Uh, how they how they went into getting ready, and I watched those guys, and I watched them every day. Because all of a sudden, and I was kind of quiet at the time. I'm really not a quiet person, but I was quiet at the time because I didn't know any of those guys, and they didn't know me. So after. When 81 started, I was a starting left fielder. I just, uh, I was kind of just trying to prove to those guys that I belonged there with them. And I got off to a good start. Uh, I remember my, my rookie season, I had like 50 stolen bases in the first 55 games. But after that happened, we went on strike. So where I was, in my first full season, and we played 55 games, and they sent us home. So there I was, you know, off to a good season, and, uh, you know, thinking about maybe an opportunity to be rookie of the year, even though I came in second anyway. Um, Fernando Valenzuela ended up winning rookie of the year, and I think Cy Young that year. So um, it it came at a time where we were on strike, so we ended up coming back. I made the all-star team and uh, played the second half. Uh, So that whole first year, I didn't really have anyone kind of mentoring me. I think they they were trying to wait and see what kind of guy I was, and uh, it took the whole year to figure that out because of the strike. Uh, but going into the next year, 82, uh, I went in there, you know, got to rookie of the, uh, run up for rookie of the year. So now I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fixture at left field. And by that time, I started being a little more vocal. 
So I went up to Andre Dawson. I said, look, man, uh, I don't know you that well, and you don't know me, but from this point on, I'm going to be in your back pocket. I want to be the player that you become. Teach me the ropes. And from that point on, me and Andre became the closest friends. And um, not only friends on the field, but friends off the field. I ended up uh, naming my second son after him. And um, Dawson became uh, that guy that taught me the ropes. But not only Dawson, you know, being around him and Carter, uh, two of the two of the best players I ever been around, one. But uh, two guys that really came to the ballpark every day, prepared to play a game, and gave it everything they had. And uh, that was what I wanted to be. And uh, those two guys kind of showed me that way. In 81, you're runner-up runner up rookie there. You hit 304, 71 bags of steel. Uh, you lead the league. You're, you, in 1981, you make your first All-Star game. Then you make seven in a row. You also lead the league in, in uh, stolen bases your first four years in the big leagues. You go 71, 78, 90, 75. And I want to get into that later because it's something – it's a kind of a lost art in the game today. And those those great – you know, as a kid, I remember growing up, I remember Tim Raines. I remember watching Vince Coleman, obviously Ricky Henderson. Uh Mm-hmm. Guys that made a difference late in the game with their legs. And it wasn't the I'm gonna steal a base when it's six to two in the third, and the guys are one five to the home plate. It's when a guy's one one seven, there's fifty thousand mm-hmm. people in the stands, and both dugouts know that I'm going, you know I'm going pitcher and catcher, you know I'm going and stealing that base. Those are the guys, you know, that I've been around in my career that really impressed me. I mean Rock, I can steal a bag if a guy's won four. I'll take, I'll take a bag. I was the greatest at, at, at you know, I had Mike Cameron stealing a lot of bases, and 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 he'd get on in front of me. I say, Cameron, you got to steal third because I got to get, I got to get that backdoor bag, man. I got, I got to pump my bags up. So you know, we know what the what the true base stealers are, and then the guys that can steal a base. You know, I see a lot of guys that steal bases, but they steal them. Not at those times, you know. I think Ricky epitomized it. Uh, you lead mm-hmm. off the ninth inning. You lead off the ninth inning with a walk, and you steal first and second. And somebody hits a sack fly, and the game's over. And and I think the game's missing that now. And, and like I said, I, I just wanted to hit on that, but we're going to talk about it a little bit later. Um, look at this 84, You hit three hundred nine. You hit three twenty and eighty five. Uh, you're the batting champ in eighty six. You hit. Th- 334, you still steal 70. 87, you hit 330 again, and you show you hit 18 jacks. And your bags, your yeah. bags fell off a little bit, though. You went down to 50. But uh, take me through those years in Montreal. You're coming from Sanford, Florida. You're going to uh, not only a, a new place, a big league, uh, uh, a big league city, but you're going to a, another country. I played in Montreal. Um, Different place. And and what was it like in the 80s playing in Montreal? My first year there uh, was 1994, and that was the strike year. And and after that, before Montreal became uh, what they are now, the Washington Nationals, each time we'd come in as visitors, 
we'd be lucky to have eight, 9,000 people in the stands. And you could hear those horns. And, and for you guys out there listening, Olympic Stadium is not a small, a small venue. I mean, it's, it's vast no. and it's, it's, it's deep and, and it's loud. And when there's 8,000 people in the stands, you can hear everything. Uh, take me through what it was like playing there in the 80s and uh, before the 94 strike. Because they say a lot of uh, a lot of people say that that that's what killed baseball in Montreal was that 94 strike that, you know, I was I was a current player when that happened. But take me through those 80s years. Well, the 80s years were were the best years. Um, I mean, we packed that place. I mean, it was. 34, 35, 40,000 people there every game. And for me, it was more like they were just starting to get familiar with baseball. I mean, Canada is is a hockey uh, country. I mean, hockey is 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 God there. Uh, you know, the best players in in the NHL is probably from Canada, it, it, it became a situation where I think the fans was trying to get to know the game, just like uh, we were trying to get to know the city of uh, Montreal. Uh, the majority of the people there spoke French. So, you know, I remember when I first got there, I, you know, obviously being from Sanford, I mean, we didn't speak French. So uh, it, it was it was a little difficult getting places, uh, talking to people because, you know, the majority didn't speak English. So uh, we had to have translators with us going uh, everywhere we went. So um, it was, it was, it was tough uh, getting around town, but when it came to baseball, uh, we got to be around all my teammates and, you know, once you got to the stadium and got around, it was just like being anywhere else. But once we left the ballpark, that was a different. So it took me a while. It took me a while to get to, used to knowing that I'm in a place where English isn't, you know, the um, the main language, um, and, and and you know. French is probably one of the toughest for me anyway, one of the toughest languages to uh, to learn. Um, my tongue doesn't really roll the way you know French people speak, so it took me a while to, to even get to say a few words. Now as a matter of fact, I mean I do know a little French, but you know four or five words is probably as little as I can get. Uh, but as the years went on, People got familiar with myself and and my teammates, and it went from you know fans just speaking French and not trying to communicate with us to fans trying to communicate, trying to speak English and trying to 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 commun- communicate with us as, as, as best as possible. And the the longer I stayed there, the better it got. And then all of a sudden. They kind of got behind me uh, as a player that, you know, has speed, stole bases, uh, leadoff guy, uh, scored runs, and I became a big, I became 
the guy that they enjoyed watching. So it became a point to where when I showed up, I got on base, everybody kind of got, the cheers started getting bigger and bigger. So when I steal a base, they knew I was going to steal. The other team knew I was going to steal. And for me, that that excited me. So it made me feel like when I came to the ballpark, I was coming not only to, to play for my team, my teammate. I came to play for those fans, and, and they enjoyed watching me do my thing. So it made it so much easier to come to the ballpark, even though we, you know, the language was a little different. But when they saw me play, they knew what I was trying to do. And, and they appreciated that. And I appreciated them appreciating me uh, doing what I did on the field. And it made it so much easier uh, to uh, to deal with the language barrier. But it also uh, gave me that excitement that, that, that pushed it that pushed me to to get out there every day, day in and day out, to do the things that I did. And uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, like I said, up until um, 94, you know, the 94 year, they had the best team in baseball. And we went on strike. So, and then the next year when they came back, they got rid of all of those, the players that they had. And I think from that point on, the fans felt like the organization failed them by getting rid of all those great players and, and, and started a rebuild. And the fans didn't appreciate that. And that was the reason why you didn't get many fans to the stand. Yeah, because, I mean, that was my – actually, Montreal, I think you said it great, definitely different than going to Toronto. Uh, and, and you yep. talk about the language where I know I'd get there. I'd say, do you know Guy Lafleur? And where is the Grand Laurent? <laughs> Th- those were the two, right. those, those were the two sayings I would say. Um, <laughs> but it was definitely different, but I liked, I liked hitting there. And you know, as a player, if you like hitting somewhere, you don't care what the city is. You're going there to hit. Um, I, I just wonder, you know, they they were toying around with this national or not the nationals, uh, Tampa Bay playing half their games in Tampa Bay, half mm-hmm. in Montreal. I think that's kind of silly. You know, you're going to piss fans off yeah. on both coasts. Like, wait a minute. Yeah. I don't have to share a team yeah. with another city. But I do wonder, uh, because of the experiences that you had in the 80s when that place was rocking, if one day down the road, if Montreal w- would get that opportunity to support another Major League Baseball team, I think it'd be great. I think it'd be great for the country of Canada. And, and you'd go back to having mm-hmm. those two those two teams. But uh, I just wanted to get your perspective because you were there uh, both times. You were there in the 80s, and then you played and you went through there as a visitor in the 90s to see the difference, especially after that 94 strike. Well, I think, I think there are definitely baseball fans in Montreal, and I think they really deserve uh, another chance because they were the first team. They were there before the Blue Jays. For the Blue Jays, yeah, and um, yeah, so um, you know, Montreal was was the first Canadian uh, franchise to to have a team in Canada. So I, I, I just feel that it was unfair to the fans, and then it wasn't. You know, they're trying to say you know there's no baseball fans there. There are fans there, but I think the fans in Montreal feel like you know 
we've we've had good teams, and uh, you know when Charles Bronfman owned the team, there was always he would always put a team out there that could compete. I think in '94 they chose to not compete. They got rid of all of their great players. And the fans, like I said earlier, the fans felt like the organization let them down. They wanted to come to the ballpark and cheer on a great team that was competing with all of the other teams. And they felt like the organization didn't do that, and that's why they decided not to go to the ballpark. But since then, I worked with the Toronto Blue Jays, and for the you know right before the pandemic. Uh, they used to play uh, spring training games at the Big O in Montreal, uh, I think for like three or four years. And every one of those years, they averaged 100,000 fans for two days for four straight years. And they only got two games the whole year. So um, I think by the fans showing them that they still love baseball, it proves that uh, that uh, baseball fans are still there in Montreal, and they just hope they get another opportunity to uh, get on the baseball team. 89 and 90, you stole 41, stole 49. After the 90 season, uh, you get traded to the White Sox. You're gonna play. You, you're gonna play there from '91 to '95. Um, you were drafted. You're, you're just a kid. You you said it yourself. You're 17 years old as a senior in high school. Now you're a little baby. They draft you in the fifth round. You come up through the organization. You have all the success that you had there in the '80s. And when you got traded, um, now that's 14 years of your life. You got traded to the White Sox. How were you feeling at that time? Well, at that time, I felt like it was it was it was time to go. You know, it was time to start trying to find an organization that wants to win a world championship. You know, I wasn't getting any younger, um, and at the time I left, it was like the fourth straight year that we would call ourselves rebuilding. It seems like every good player, a player we got coming up through the system and made it to the majors that ended up becoming the players. Um, or, you know, their their contract had ran out, everybody was leaving. You know, Dawson had left, Carter had left. Uh, so all those guys that I started with were starting to go to other teams. The only guy that I, I started with that was still there was myself and, uh, and Tim Wallach. And we came up through the minor leagues together. So I felt like I was, I, was, I, was, I was in a position that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't in a position to win a, a world championship. So in 91, I kind of went to them and I said, you know, if you guys, you know, are not going to go out and get veterans and, and, and bring them here, which it was tough. Back then, there wasn't a lot of players that wanted to come and play in Montreal, especially free agents. So uh, I felt like 
my best chance to to win a world championship was to uh, to leave and, and go somewhere that already had a foundation of of uh, a chance to win the world championship. And that's why I ended up going to uh, to the White Sox because they had a young team. Uh, they had some great young stars. You know, Frank Thomas uh, had a year on his belt. Robin Ventura had a year on his belt, and those were two two stars. And they had a great young pitching staff. And uh, I felt like if I had the opportunity to go there, I wouldn't have to worry about rebuilding because they had already started their rebuild, and they were at the point to where now they needed some veterans that can get them over the hump. And I felt like that was a, a perfect place for me to go, and that's why I'm going there. You go there from 91 to 95. Um, then you get to a point where you really do get a chance to win, and you do win. You get traded to the Yankees. Uh, and you play there for three years, you get 284, 321, and 290. Going to the Big Apple, uh, and I think all of us that have played the game, uh, there, there's something to be said. Yankee Stadium is just a different place, especially old Yankee yeah. Stadium. Man, as an opponent, I you talk about when I, I'd have that trip pin like, oh, I can't wait. I just loved going to New York. I love walking down the street. I love going to old Yankee Stadium and with the pipes dripping as you walk in. But there was something about that place. It was it was awesome. Uh, your skipper was Joe Torrey and you were playing for the boss, the big boss. I I, I don't know. You had personal, uh, you know, personal experiences with the boss. I've never met uh, Steinbrenner. I never got a chance to meet him. But as an opponent for so many years, uh, I knew he was kind of out there. You know, he said some stuff that that most yeah. owners wouldn't say he wasn't politically correct. But I always had an appreciation for from for uh, for Steinbrenner from afar because I always thought, you know, this guy may say something. He may call you out in the newspaper front page of the sports page. But as a player, I don't really care because I know at the end of the day, all he wants to do is win. And I'll take 10 owners that want to win over the rest that, that could care less and are nice guys to me. I'd rather have that, that kind of uh, polarizing figure. What was, what was your uh, experience when you first got there with, with Tori as your skipper and especially the boss? I'm always curious about him. Well, you know, I, I felt the same way. Just like you felt. I mean, you know, to go to a place, and it's tough playing in New York because if you do well, they're going to love you. If you don't do well, they're going to let you know. You're a horrible human being. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that was the decision I had to make, you know, because, uh, you know, I played in Montreal, small market. I played in Chicago, which is kind of in between. It's not as big as New York or L.A., but Chicago is the big city. But, you know, at the time, you know, it was like, you know, south side, north side. You know, the Cubs or the White South. And, uh, you know, the decision to go to New York was, was, was a big decision for me because, um, you know, like I said, you really have to know yourself well enough to be able to deal with what New York brings. 
I mean, it brings great fanfare. Uh, the organization has won more championships than, than any other organization in, in, in sports. So, and what they demand from you, the fans demand that, you know, if you're a Yankee, you know, you, you can't do no wrong. If you do wrong, then they're going to let you know. So that was the decision I had to make. You know, do I want to go there and, you know, be ridiculed if I had a bad year or a bad game and, 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 and be able to deal with that? Or, you know, do I go somewhere where it's safe, where, you know, I don't have to worry about all that pressure? Uh, so I felt, you know, I was pretty confident in, in what I could do as a player. And New York wasn't going to be the difference uh, why I don't go there. And I thought at the time New York was the best place to be for me. And uh, I had a great manager. The owner, like you said, uh, is, is not like most other owners. He would let you know how he felt, and, and he could care less who you were and how much money he was paying you. And um, so there were some situations there that kind of <laughs> I looked at and go, wow, uh, I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, but as the, the three years went on, I felt like it was it was kind of the norm, and I kind of got used to that. But the key for me was was winning. And, and like he said about about George, he he was unorthodox, but he was he was a guy that wanted to win, and he would do anything he could to uh, to become a winner. If it takes trading this guy or getting that guy or getting someone that uh, another team couldn't get, I mean, he would do things like that. He would go out and, 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 and trade for a player, and. Uh, just because, say, Boston wanted to get him or Baltimore wanted to get him. He went out and got those players to keep him away from other teams. But but that was the way he was, but he wanted to win. And uh, I, I recognized that in him, and I recognized that uh, in the team that we had put together those three years I was there. And uh tell you, boy, that was the best three years of my career as far as baseball winning, you know, ended up winning two championships, number three, and uh, then they let me go. And they ended up winning like two or three more. So I was kind of hoping I stayed there another two or three years. I got four or five uh, rings because my first year in New York was Jeter's first year. And that's where it started for Derek Jeter. And, um, you know, you know, it's, it's history uh, after that. And uh, he, I think he ended up winning what six, five or six. I think five or six. I mean, I just look at that. I just look at that time in history, and and you were there right at the beginning of that run. It was ninety six. You win the World mm-hmm. Series. You beat the Braves. Yep. Ninety eight. You end up beating the Padres in in the ninety eight World Series. But as you mentioned, they go on in ninety nine to win another World Series. Two thousand, they won another one, and in two thousand one, Gonzo. Gets the gets the knock yep. up the middle when Mariano jams him to to win in a walk up. So, 
So they were one they were one inning away from winning in 2001. If they win in 97, that's like seven in a row. But anyway, there ended yeah. up being yeah. there ended up being four or five. It's pretty unprecedented time. And, and one of the you know, that that group of players that went through, you know, 96 to 2001. That's that's one of the most heralded times as you know, as as prestigious as that Yankee organization is, uh, the '96 to 2001 run, or the two 2000, I forget the two to the 2000 run, is is right up there on on you know one of the best runs of all time. Yeah, uh, yeah. First World Series, how was it for you? And and was there a difference uh, between the '96 and the '98? Was the '98 just as sweet, or or was that first one uh, a little more special for you? The first one was probably the most special because, you know, at that time I had had 17 years uh, in and, uh, you know, from leaving Montreal in 91, I was on that, that World Series search. You know, I wanted to be on a team that, that could get us there. I mean, when I went to Chicago, I went to the playoffs a couple of times and couldn't get past the Blue Jays. So I had to deal with that. But once I got to New York and, you know, the first two games in the World Series in New York in 96, the Braves, I mean, spanked us in Yankee Stadium. I mean, first two games, uh, they beat us up pretty bad. So we limped into uh, Atlanta. Uh, and I'll never forget this. Uh, George came with us. Uh, to Atlanta, and he came into the clubhouse and uh, had a little speech saying that uh, he didn't feel like we were good enough to beat the Braves. So, you know, he said, try not to embarrass me. Uh, at least try to win one game. And uh, after that <laughs> little meeting, we, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's classic. That we, sounds uh, like something he'd do, though. Mm-hmm. After the meeting we had, uh, we kind of kind of came together, kicked him out of our locker room, and we kind of came together and uh, said, you know, look, guys, he don't think we can win. We know we, we're better than what we played the first two games. And we're not winning the next four. So um, that was <laughs> that was kind of cool, you know, seeing, you know, George come in and kind of put a little pressure. I don't know if that was by design or – did he really believe that we were going to get spanked, you know, four in a row? So, um, uh, but 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 those were the good old days, you know. Those were the days where you know guys came to the ballpark, uh, and and we had a team in in New York from '96 to when I left, and they had great teams after I left. Uh, teams that uh, we had players from all over the place. We had players from other organizations. We had players that came up to the Yankees organization. We talked about Jeter and Posada and 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 uh, you know Bernie Williams and a few other guys that played really big roles that came up through their system. But the other guys came up in other organizations. You know. Um, Martinez came from Seattle. You know, I came from the White Sox. We had Boggsy over at third base, came from Boston. And, 
you know, we had we had other players from other teams. So it wasn't really like a a a a, a, a team that came up through the organization. You know, and George could care less about guys coming up through the organization. If he had a, if he had a player from another team and he could get him, he would go out and try to get him. If it needed for him to get rid of some great minor league players, he did. Because he was all about winning now, not about the future. It was about every year we want to win. If a guy wasn't ready, you trade him and bring somebody that was ready. So uh, being a part of that, uh, I kind of understood how he felt. And, and, and I think that's clear. That's how we feel. You know, we feel like, you know, we want to be on teams that are doing everything that they can to, to put the fellas on the field that can win championships. And uh, I thought that it was a great move to uh, to go to New York, and it paid off for them. Awesome run. Um, then you head to Oakland, 1999. And this is kind of – this is pre-Moneyball now. And yeah. – you never get it going from the start. You end up being diagnosed with lupus disease, and you miss the. In, yep. I think that was midway. Correct me if I'm wrong. Midway through the '99 yeah, right season, yeah, yeah, you end up missing the the entire 2000 season. What's going through your mind when when Doc tells you that? Oh my God! I was um, when I first heard the news. I was like, "What? I had never heard of. I had never heard of lupus." You know, uh, even though it's, it's a disease that predominantly um, affects uh, females and and minorities, uh, probably more females than, than males, but um, it was it was something I had had never heard of. So when I found out, I was uh, I was scared really because uh, I didn't know anything about it. So. I took that time, uh, you know, going through um, chemotherapy and and not really knowing, you know, what was really going to happen to me. I had gained uh, about, in respect to my kidneys, so I gained about, I had a lot of water weight on me. I gained about 15, 20 pounds. So I was up to like 250, man. I mean, I was bloated to the point to where my kidneys wasn't really functioning properly. So uh, once they uh, figured out what was wrong with me, uh, I got, see, I couldn't play anymore that year. So I went through chemotherapy for the rest of that year. And um, I wasn't, wasn't really sure of what was gonna happen uh, in my career. So, I ended up missing the 2000 season and I was right about ready to try to come back. Uh, I got all my strength back. I, I, um, I went to spring training with the Yankees. And this is kind of crazy. The last day of spring training, I felt like I was pretty sure I had made the team. But the last day of spring training, uh, we played that last game. We were getting ready to get on a plane and go, you know, to New York or whatever. I got hit in the foot, and I broke my toe. 
So at that time, they told me, okay, we're going to send to the minor leagues, and, and if we're getting ready, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll call you up. But at that time, you know, I was saying, you know, I'm not sure if I get if I go to my leagues, I might not ever come back. <laughs> so, so what I ended up doing was like, okay, I'm I'm just retired. So what I did was that was the year that um, you know the Olympics were being played. And I, I said that was a perfect opportunity for me to try out for the Olympics and make an Olympic team and hopefully win a gold medal. So, you know, I've already, I've already won a World Series. And to get an opportunity to play in the Olympics uh, was a goal of mine. And, you know, as a major league player, we couldn't go because it was, it was during the season. So there was an opportunity for me to uh, try out for the Olympic team and hopefully make it and uh, be on the Olympic team. So they sent me to um, to New Jersey to play in, in the independent league for two weeks, and that was sort of, sort of like my tryout. I go there, I play for two weeks, I hit like three sixty, and I'm, I'm I'm waiting on a call from the Olympic committee. So uh, they called me after the two weeks was over, and they told me that. Uh, they decided not to go with me. They were going to take two pictures. And I was like, what? <laughs> and the reason why, <laughs> after the reason, and there was no major league players on that. I think they ended up taking one major league play, ex major league player that had major league time on that team. So it was a bunch of minor league players. And um, the reason why we're not, we're not gonna let you go. It's because the name on your on on your jersey, which is Reigns. So I'm saying, what that got to do with anything? They say, well, we feel like if you go to the Olympics with with your situation, people are gonna be talking more about you and your situation than the team, and that's why we're not we we don't want you to come. And I was like, what? <laughs> I say, well, you knew this before you sent me out there to, to out, try out for the team. Why? Yeah, my name didn't change. No, that's right. My, the name of my jersey still haven't changed. And, uh, you know, for some reason, they felt like um, I would be in the way. I would be uh, the main topic of... Uh, the U.S. team than, you know, guys playing on the field. I didn't understand that, and to this day, I still don't understand it. And they ended up winning the gold medal. And, uh, you know, I felt like, you know, they could have tucked me in and I could have been on the bench, you know, come off the bench, pinch hit or something. I mean, just to be a part of that team, I would, I was willing to do anything, but they – didn't give me the opportunity to uh, to do any of it. So uh, I was uh, kind of ticked off uh, at uh, at that. And it inspired me to, to work that much hard to go and try to make a team. Uh, the next year, I ended up going uh, to Montreal uh, spring training, uh, made the team, 
and with uh, a starter at uh, opening day. So uh, I was trying to prove to the people who said that, you know, I couldn't play, that I could still play, and I could still play at the highest level and definitely could have played at the Olymp- Olympic level. And uh, I mean, I'm making a team and uh, having a pretty decent year uh, that next year. You hit 300, and uh, and I've heard about this. But I heard that home opener, you coming oh, back yeah. to Montreal after all those years. Uh, I don't know if it was you said it or, or somebody said it, but they said it was one of the biggest ovations they've ever they've ever seen in our sport. Um, you know, we play this game, and and there's certain times that you remember. I'm sure we all. I'm sure you have memories, like I have memories. Certain moments, certain ovations. It's not like they're a dime a dozen, and they're and they're special when they do happen. But but probably when I I could just picture Tim Raines coming back to Montreal after after being there all those years in the '80s and '90s, and that first time you step in after coming back from Lupus, uh, and all the all the things you had. Uh, all the success you'd had in your career, that had to be a pretty cool standing ovation going like to the point where you probably think, well, how am I going to get a hit now? Take me through that, that standing <laughs> ovation. Well, you, you said it right. You know, uh, you know, coming from a place that I adored. I mean, even though I love Montreal, I still adored Montreal. I mean, that's where I grew up. I mean, I was a kid. Uh, starting in the major league there, uh, end up leaving. But you know, the opportunity to come back to where I started was uh, it was uh, special to, to me, and the fans made it even more special. You know, I when they announced my name uh, to to lead off the game, I got the standing ovation, and they stood up the whole at-bat. I mean, they did not sit down. And I'm trying to hit while they're up cheering for me. And it, it didn't really bother me, but I think it bothered the pitcher. We were playing the Mets. And Tim Wallach, I, no, let's, no, we are playing the Mets, so I think it was Robin Ventura. Robin Ventura was at third base. And he was an ex-teammate of mine. And... Uh, he looked at me and he said, he said, you know, tell him to, be, to sit down. I'm like, why? <laughs> I'm kind of enjoying this myself. And uh, I, I, was, I was enjoying it, but the, the, the opposing pitcher could not throw a strike. So he walked me on a four straight pitcher. And um, I was hoping to throw a strike so I could get hit for him. But uh, getting a walk was, was just as good. And, uh, but like you said, I mean, as players, uh, and athletes, you know, you go out to try to please, you know, your, your hometown or your home fans. And, uh, was one of the things I really loved about Montreal is their fans really adored, uh, their teams and their players. And, uh, they had an affection for me and, uh, I was I was I was so proud of, of of being able to to get a second chance uh at the game and to go back to where I started. 
and uh, you know, it uh, it kind of brought some some tears to my eyes. You know, just to know that uh, the fans remember me the way they did, and and they uh, and they showed it. And uh, that was a problem. That's probably one of the, like you said earlier, probably the biggest ovation I ever had. But uh, that moment and the situation that we were in at that time uh, made it even more special. Yeah, Ken, it's a goosebump moment. It's pretty, like I said, they don't happen yeah. very often. It had to be. It had like to be it. pretty awesome. Now, this is this is another thing for me. Uh, that that is really cool, and and I read about this. You got to play against your son in the minor leagues, um, mm-hmm. but you end up getting to play side by side with him. Now I'm too old. My, you know, my son's starting his journey. He's in, he's an A ball. I don't I don't think we have any comebacks in this 52 year old. Um, and 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 Timmy, you got to do it the right. I mean, first of all, you got to have your kids when you're really young. You got to get to the yep. big leagues really quick, and you got to play for a long time. So there's a reason right. that only two people have done it. You know, obviously the Griffey, we see that. You know, that's the headlines. But but just getting the chance. Uh, to, to play with play against your kids must have been awesome. I remember when I was coming up in the minor leagues, my dad had just retired and he was, he managed for Tacoma in the, in the PCL. I played for Calgary. We come through town and I used to beat his brains and I'd loved it. That was cool for me. You know, that was kind of a family affair and it was neat. I got right. to play one. I got to play in 1998. Uh, my brother was my third baseman in Cincinnati. So I turned two with him all year and, and that was cool. But it's a different. A father son is a different relationship. Uh, yeah. Nobody gets to do that. Um, how did that happen? How did that that trade get facilitated to go to Baltimore so you had a chance to play with him? Well, um, it's, it's, it's a weird story. Oh, it's a funny story. Uh, what happened was, um, and, and and that was part of the reason why I tried to come back. I mean, if I wouldn't have made a team, it never would have happened. If I wasn't, you know, in the, the shape that I was in to, to make a major league team, it, it, it wouldn't have happened. But I felt like, and I told my son, I say, look, um, I don't know how many more years I have to play in this game. Uh, and he had already signed. Uh, I think he was in like his third or fourth year uh, in the minor league. And he got called up to the big leagues. Uh, and that was in 01. So uh, my son is uh, in the minor leagues, uh, and he was a September call-up. And uh, we were in Miami, and that's when September 11 happened. So they shut the season down uh, for a week, and we had a week left of the season. And uh, I think Baltimore called the uh, Expos. Uh, they was having a situation in the outfield. Uh, all the outfielders that got hurt, so they didn't have any more outfielders. So the guys they called up was one. My son was one, and um, maybe another guy. But then they were they were out of outfielders. So he called the Expos and said, "You know, can we uh, make a deal uh, with you guys to get?" maybe Tim to come over and play with his son. And uh, so after the game that night, I didn't know anything about it. They brought me into the office and they say, look, uh, the oldest called, 
they want to know if if you if you would uh, come to Baltimore and finish the season out. So it was like four or five days left, and they asked me if if I wouldn't mind going to play in Baltimore. And I said, "What? You asking me to go to Baltimore? I know my son has been called up." And I thought they were they were playing a joke on me. I said, you know, all right, guys, I've been in this game too long to be having jokes played on me like that. And they say, no, no, it's not a joke. Uh, we're serious. Uh, you know, they need an outfielder to, to finish out the season, and it'll be a perfect time for you to go and play with your son. I'm pretty sure that uh, you didn't think this could ever happen, but this is a perfect opportunity for you guys to play together. Uh, he plays center and I play left. So I said, uh, okay, yes, I will do it. No problem. So they said, uh, okay, tomorrow we'll give you a call and let you know uh, if we got the deal done and then it's up to you to get to Baltimore. So they called me that morning. Um, I packed up and jumped on a plane and we got to Baltimore uh, right, uh, before game time. So I get there, uh, and I go on the field. I go get dressed. My son don't know anything about what happened. So they made a deal and didn't tell him. So I, uh, I go in the, in the locker room, get my uniform on, and come out to the field. He's getting ready for the game. He's doing his sprints before the game starts. So I run out there and I say, what's up, son? He looked at me, his eyes got, got about as big as his head and said, what the heck are you doing here? And I'm in a Baltimore uniform. And it was so, it was funny to me, but not so funny for him because he didn't really know what was going on. And, uh, but it was it was a great moment, you know, just to seeing the look on his face and, you know, me being a proud pop of, of him making it to the majors and then me getting the opportunity uh, to play beside him. And uh, that was probably one of the most, I don't know how, you, how to say it, uh, moments, uh, you know, things, we never dreamed this. We never talked about it, you know, because it's out of our hand uh, when it comes to who we play for and, uh, you know, being able to get an opportunity to play with your son, which is something I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't do on my own. So it had to be two organizations getting together to make it happen for us. So I was so, uh, so thankful, uh, not only, for the Expos and, and, and the Orioles uh, for giving myself and Tim Jr. an opportunity to, to do this because it had only been done one other time. So um, the proudest moment, though, was I didn't didn't play that night. The next night, I ended up starting in left field and, and Tim was in center. And uh, to be beside him, uh, and we were in Baltimore, so to be beside him, Doing the national anthems was uh, was you know something that uh, you know like I said we never thought about, but uh, I think the both of us had were sharing tears during that 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 time when we were playing the anthems, 
And uh, I'll never forget telling him. I said, okay. Right before the game started, I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the pop. You are the son. I'm in left. I'm not going to take one step to my left. You got everything to my left, but I got everything to my right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, it, the weird thing about that game, though, that first game we played together, they about to hit like seven balls down the line. It had me running in that corner all <laughs> <night>. <laughs> So, but, you know, uh, again, uh, probably the proudest moment, uh, you know, uh, as far as family is concerned to, uh, to be able to play. That, that had to be, that had to be awesome. I mean, yeah, the, the father, son, it's just different. Like I said, I played with my brother. That was cool. I played against my dad, he, but he was a, he was a staff member, you know, he wasn't a player, but to actually be on the field playing the game at the highest level, uh, Pretty, pretty. I, I thought it would have been cool. You talk about running out on the line the day before, and if your son mm-hmm. didn't know, obviously they didn't tell the crowd either. So all of a sudden no. they see T- Tim Raines Senior coming out. What, what's going on here? That had to be a pretty cool moment for the fans that were at that game just to see. Well, they're going to see history here in a minute, but uh, I don't know. I, I think. It, but oh, by the way, did you get a knock that night? Who 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 got the better of of the uh, father son duo? I did. I went deep. He could. He 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 couldn't go deep. <laughs> oh, you showed him. You, know, you went deep. You, know, thinking, you went deep. I was. Yeah, I was thinking. We we're playing. We we're playing the uh, Boston and uh, Tim, uh, the knuckleballer, uh, Wakefield. Wakefield. Wakefield was pitching, and uh, I don't think my son has seen anything like that before. I had saw enough of it, so I mean, I was pretty good at hitting the knuckleball. <laughs> But uh, he tried to throw me a three-one um, cutter. Yeah, that's what he used to do to get a strike. Yeah, and I took him right center. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and you know, and the reason why I say that because you know when the Griffiths played together, they went back to back home runs. Yeah, they did. And uh, with, with I think Little Rock was leading off, I was batting like fifth. So we couldn't do that. But I was hoping that, you know, he could show he got a little juice. And I showed him that I had some. But uh, he, was, he wasn't he was able to hit one out. But, um, you know, it, but not only that, that was Kyle's last year. Yeah, 01. So, you know, sometimes it kind of gets, kind of get you know, looked over because that was, that was his last year and uh, me and him was playing. So, you know, most of the fan was there for Kyle. And I think a lot of them wasn't really sure what was going on with me and my son, but you know, if you were a big fan, you knew, but you know, most of them were Kyle fans. So they were kind of excited about seeing Kyle this last games. And, uh, you know, me and my son kind of had our own little thing going, even though we were proud of Kyle. But uh, we had our own little thing going, and uh, but it was exciting. It was really exciting, uh, not only to play with my son, but also to play play with Kyle Ripken. You know, one of the greatest players that ever played the game. To, to get a chance to play with him and my son was like that was icing on the cake. Yeah, pretty awesome. Oh, uh, two, you finish up in Florida. And you end up retiring over 2,600 hits, 800-plus bags, seven-time All-Star. Uh, I think you hit 307 times. Um, 
you go on and 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 get into coaching. You always think about that. Or you, did you think at the end of your career, when I'm done here, I'm going to put a uni on and just be part of a staff, or, or did that just that just come about organically? I, I just think it was it was part of what I wanted to do. I mean. When I left high school, I, I started playing baseball, and baseball was pretty much one thing I did know, uh, and, and it was the one thing that I enjoyed uh, doing. And uh, I felt like it was the perfect opportunity to uh, not only stay in the game, but uh, have the opportunity to uh, – to uh, coach or, or teach uh, kids the game. And uh, it was a game that I really loved. Uh, I loved it dearly. And uh, I felt like it was an opportunity for me to kind of give a little back. And that was to uh, get into coaching. And that's what I did. 2005. You won your third ring as a coach. What's the difference? Player coach. Because I think, you know, as a coach, you sit there and, you, and you, you grind it out with these guys all year. You're not getting any hits. You're not stealing any bases. You're not going deep. But you're living and dying with your guys. When you win that World Series in 2005, how does it compare to when you won it as a player? Well, it's, it's different. Uh, but the one, the one uh, thing about winning it in Chicago uh, as a coach Knowing I had played there before, trying to win one as a player, it didn't happen. But uh, I, I kind of felt like uh, it, it's not the same. It felt like it. Uh, it was my first year uh, as a as a major league coach. So uh, it was the first time I as a player, as a coach. Uh, first base coach, so uh, I felt like I was I was in the middle of everything. Not that I had anything to do with it, but I felt like I was a big part of uh, you know that that world championship. You know, because you know first base coaches and and and, and third base coaches are a really big part of of you know the game. I mean, they play a big role, and I felt like uh, my role uh, with that team was important. And uh, and I and I uh, I looked at it like uh, it was a big job, not only uh, during the regular season, but now you're in the playoffs, and and you know everything's on the line. And uh, I was fortunate to be on a team that had uh, you know be on the staff. Uh, of a team that uh, had a great pitching staff, but I didn't. I, I wouldn't say we we were a, a juggernaut as far as offense was concerned, but we had a couple of players that got hot at the right time, and a pitching staff that uh, was hot that whole playoffs uh, that kind of pushed us through it all, you know. And uh, to 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 win a world championship, regardless if you're a coach or a player, is and uh, to have already won it twice uh, made it that much more special. Now I want to talk about before we get out of here. I want to I want to talk about 
<clears throat> stealing bases. I got, uh, you know, I'd mentioned Vince Coleman earlier. I got to play with Vince and he was really, you know, he'd be out there with the young base stealers, teaching them, mm-hmm. teaching them tells things that he did. I got to, I, I coached with uh, the Oakland A's for two years, uh, 2014 and 15 in the minor leagues. And, and Ricky was on our staff. So, uh, me and Ricky would go out and I'd watch Ricky working with the young, young players. What are some of the things, did you enjoy teaching base stealing or did you like, because base stealing, I found, I found this. Everybody doesn't have it. Everybody can't do it. I, I consider myself a really good base runner. I wasn't a base stealer. You know, we mentioned, we talked about it earlier. If it's a one, four or higher, I'm going, I can get a bag there, but I'd always be, you know, my first, because I always wanted to sneak one rock when you're not a base stealer, you're always trying to get that up because you want to talk to your base stealing buddies on the team. Like, Hey, I got another bag. What are you going to do? You you, you get to hit another home run now. So you're always trying to do that. But uh, what were some of your tells? Because it is, it really is an art stealing bases, and and we talked about when, especially when everybody knows you're going. That's the true tell for me of a great base stealer is somebody that everybody knows you're going. You run right in their face, and you're safe more than you're out. Uh, take me through how you would teach a young kid. And I want to hear about the clock for you. I hear different numbers, but I know you listen to clock. You get to first base. You ask first base coach, what's his time? You probably had an idea mm-hmm. whether he was slow or fast. What number yeah. for you says I can't go? And, and I'm not taking into consideration who's behind the plate. That's going to probably temper into yeah. your decision process. If Pudge Rodriguez is behind the plate, maybe I need a different number. But the average yeah. big league catcher, what do you need to say? I, I'm not going to run on this. Or is it a number? Um, I, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's a number and then it's who's behind the plate too. You know, I think, um, the one thing, and, and it's tough, uh, trying to teach, uh, minor league guys the whole story because they don't know a lot of the other players, you know, they don't get to play them like, you know, a major league season, you get to play, you know, catchers you know who the catchers are you know who right and, right and you play years and years against these guys yeah. so you know so a you minor league guy might be an a ball right he might be an a ball right. for a month and then he's in double a and he's never heard of these guys i get it i'm sorry go right. ahead right so it's, it's it's a little tougher uh to teach them you know my, my goal was don't worry about the catcher you know the times on the pitcher it's the keys when we start in the minor leagues. And then as you get older and as you figure it out, uh, you will know who, who the guys got the guns, who, who like to pitch out, you know, who like to call fastball all the time when you're on base. And, um, you know, then it comes down to you really not stealing off of, of the catcher. You're pretty much stealing off the pitcher. So when, when I have a guy that's slide stepping, I want to know how many breaking balls he throws from that slide step, even with me on base. Okay. So, uh, and, and, and that's knowing, like I said, that's knowing the catcher. You know, I, I, I knew when I got on base, I'm going to get fastballs up and away. And they're going to try to get me. But I can tell when a pitcher changes his motion, you know, they're going to change their motion anyway anyway with me on base but uh you can tell like okay 
when a catcher wants, it's not a pitch out, but it's sort of like a, a high fastball away. It's pretty much a pitch out, but it's it's not like an intentional pitch out. So you always want to know their tendencies. I mean, when you get to the big leagues, you, you got all the tendencies. I mean, we got scouts that are telling us, you know, what pitch this guy's going to throw with somebody on base, and it's a 2-2 count. What pitches are you going to throw the majority of the time? Fastball or breaking ball? I mean, so we have scouts that are, know all the information about all the players. So we get all that information, and we and we try to use that the best of our abilities. You know, if you got a guy that doesn't like to throw the first, but he's quick to, to home plate, then you want to try to figure out his, his, his tendencies, you know, what he does. On a, on, a, on, a, on a consistent basis, you know, he, he 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 looks and he goes, or he's come set. One thousand one, he goes, and if they start doing that consistently uh, against you, now I mean, that might not mean that first time you might want to see what he's going to do, and and not try to get thrown out just because you don't know what he's doing. Now there gonna come some times where you don't know all the information. And and you just have to try, okay? You have to make the catcher throw you out. You know, it's not a guarantee that a guy gets a good throw and the catcher throws it down and you're going to be out. So um, I, I tried to know as much as I could about the opposing pitcher and the catcher and, and the catcher's tendencies and, and what type of pitches, you know, is it a fastball pitcher, is it a breaking ball pitcher? You know, what do you like to throw – uh, the most early in the count. So um, it's it's just knowing uh, who you're facing a lot of times. But uh, but as far as technique, that could be different because everybody doesn't do the same things that everyone else does. Everyone's going to do something a little bit different. You know, I might, uh, for me, uh, I went went left over right to get going. And there are some people who like to have a little jab step with their right foot starting and then cross over. Uh, some guys could do it and some guys couldn't. So I always looked at a player and see what he did best as far as his takeoffs was concerned. And then we want to know, you know, uh, your, how consistent you were with what you saw you know, your reaction for what you see. Okay, when that pitcher makes a move, how quick you are to take off. You know, we had a guy, Bernie Williams could fly, but he couldn't steal bases. It would seem like every time he, he tried to steal a base, someone would throw him out. I'm like, dude, you're probably, you probably the fastest guy out here. But he, he had a problem with his first step. Once he got going, he he could fly, but that first step was his problem. So, uh, you know, I, if I knew that when I was playing with him, I probably could have worked with him to got to, to get a little better. But you know, back then, you know, he had home runs anyway, so I'm like, you don't need to steal your bases, man. So hit the ball out. That's right. It's tiring too, steal bases and hit yeah. home run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, but you know, when I'm when I'm teaching, you know, younger kids, I, I, I try to tell them all the things that they can look for, and, and, and give them an idea of, of what you're really looking at, and, and 
try to figure out how quick they are with with uh, the decisions that they made as far as, okay, he's going to the plate. Do I go now? Uh, how quick I am with, with my start when he goes to the plate. And, uh, you know, if, if, if guys were, you know, as soon as the guy lifted his leg or made any kind of move, they were gone. Those are going to be pretty good base stealers. But if yeah, there was some little hesitation on, you know, and when the guy went to the plate and he didn't go right on time, then we had to try to work on that kind of stuff. So uh, it wasn't so much of, 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 you know, one, I feel like you have to have speed. Uh, speed is important, but uh, quickness, uh, you know, getting to full speed as quick as possible. For me, after that first step, I'm at full speed. And that was, I think that was the difference between me being successful because I got at full speed after maybe one or two steps. You have some guys who get to full speed after three, four steps. And those three, four steps might mean the difference of you being thrown out or being safe. So, um, you know, we, we, we looked at a lot of different things. Uh, time was important, but I think that uh, when, 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 when you saw there was time to go and how quick you, 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 you took off. And uh, if you were quick doing that, you were going to be pretty successful. But if you wasn't, then, you know, we had to try to work on it. Yeah, it quickened you up a little bit. 2001, you get uh, inducted into Montreal Expo Hall of Fame and your number retired. I think you're one of four, not including Jackie Robinson. He might be the fifth. Uh, mm -hmm. Pretty awesome. But the ultimate comes for you in 2017. Tenth ballot. Uh, good, good buddy of mine and, and kind of a hitting mentor of mine later in my career, Edgar Martinez, he went through the same thing. He got in mm -hmm. on the final, final ballot. So he, you know, uh, I've talked to him about it and, you know, so I've heard what it kind of feels like for you going through. All right. It's that time of year. Hall of Fame time. Wait by the phone. Doesn't ring. Doesn't ring. Doesn't ring. <laughs> right. At at some point, are you just going screw this? It's never going to happen. Or who knows? I I can't control. I don't know. What are what are the emotions? We had Bert Blyleven on the show recently. He talked about it. He said, "Booney, I got to a point where well, it was out of my control. There's nothing I could do. I'd been let down so many times. I, I didn't know it was ever going to happen. Uh, what was the, what was that roller coaster ride for you?" Well, for me, uh, when I when I finished, I never thought about it. You know, I never thought about Hall of Fame. Uh, I felt like I had a good career, and uh, the last thing I was even thinking about was was Hall of Fame. Uh, I felt like I had, you know, I remember having a conversation with Reggie Jackson, and this was like before. I mean, I'd been on the ballot. A couple of years, and uh, like I said, I, 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 I would, I would look at the numbers. So the first year, I, I had enough to stay on. The next year, I got like uh, up in the fifteens or the twenties. So I wasn't even close the first, you know, three or four years. So I didn't even think about it. All I thought about was, okay, so hopefully I get enough to stay on the ballot. You know what I mean? So after, I think my sixth or seventh year, Richard Jackson came to me. He said, hey, Rock, um, 
was looking at your numbers, man, and I think you really belong there. And he said, when Reggie said that to me, I was like, oh, my God, I got a chance. If Reggie drinks it, think <laughs> Right, he's going to promote me. <laughs> right, because Reggie, Reggie don't give anybody any credit. You know? Right, tell, <laughs> tell Reggie to retweet it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he said, uh, I, I think you belong. And, and after that, that's when I really start paying attention. And uh, I remember my last year, because uh, Andre Dawson used to call me, I think from that point on, every year. He said, he said, homie, he called me, he said, homie, don't worry about it, man. You're going to make it. It's a process. You might not get in next year, or you might not get in the next year. But as these numbers keep piling up, eventually you're going to get in. So that last year was the only, one of the only years after he had started calling me that he didn't call me. So I'm thinking, uh oh. I normally get a call from Andre Dawson telling me that, <laughs> you know, they're telling me that, you know, it's okay, you know, it's going to happen. And he kept, he kept being positive to me. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. It's just a process. He didn't call me that year. I was like, uh oh. What do I say? And it's my last year, so I know whether he's on my either in or I'm not going to get in. And, uh, but what screwed me up though was you know how they have the they have the percentage uh, from the people that publicize their vote, right? And uh, I think the the published votes had me at like eighty some percent. So I had a cousin of mine call me and go, "Hey man, congratulations! You got it! You got it!" You got it to the Hall of Fame. I'm like, wait a minute, man. I ain't got oh, I haven't got a phone call yet. There's so 40 ballots they haven't counted. <laughs> yeah. So people, they were thinking that because, you know, they publicize it on on the MLB network, you know, what what the percentages are. And he thought I had got in because it was like 80-some percent. And I uh, said, so no, uh, I haven't got in yet. I haven't got the phone call. So, uh Try not to call me because I'm waiting on a phone call. And um, sure enough, uh, I got the call. And uh, are you talking about somebody excited? I mean, uh, you know, my last year, it was my only chance, my last chance. And uh, I got that phone call. That was uh, that was special. Wow, that's awesome. What are you most proud of? Um... I would say I'm most proud of uh, just making it. You know, uh, I think, you know, when you're a kid, you know, even though I didn't think about baseball as a kid, uh, once I made that decision that baseball was going to be the sport that I ended up playing and, uh, you know, going out there and proving that uh, it was, uh, that's what I'm most proud of because, you know, I was thinking that, it's going to be something else. You know, when you're a kid and you're thinking about something else and then you end up changing your mind at the last minute, uh, you're not sure what's going to happen because it's something you never thought about. And all of a sudden, 
uh, instead of football, is baseball. And uh, to me, I think baseball is harder to get in the major leagues than, you know, as a football player. If you're good enough at the, at the college level, you're probably good enough, you know, at, at, at the NFL level. So you go from college to the NFL. But in baseball, you've got to prove yourself that you belong on a major league team. And you've got to prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt that you belong there. And you, when you, once you get there, you've got to prove that you belong to stay there. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a different uh, grind, I think. Uh, you know, you play 16 games in football, but, I mean, it's physically it's a little more difficult. But baseball, you play 162. So, you know, you've got an everyday assignment, and you've got to be, be prepared every day. And uh, that was something that, you know, like I said, as a kid, I never thought about. But once I got going, you know, you, you think about it every day. And you think about, okay, what can I do today to be better than I was yesterday? And, and I kind of had that mindset every day that I played in the major leagues. And and I had fun doing it. You know, I think when when you do something that you love doing, and you get paid for it, but you're doing it in front of 40, 50,000 people every night. I mean, what, what, what's better than that and, and, and having success? And I think the more success you have, the looser you are. And uh, it, it, it makes you go out there day in and day out to, to prove not only to the fans but to yourself that uh, you belong and uh, you deserve it. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Tim Raines, uh, this has been awesome. A lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, and what a career. And congrats. You know, I talked to you the other day on the phone. I said, I'm five years late, but congrats on that Hall of Fame. I know it was cool. <laughs> Don't worry about it, man. Yeah. <laughs> awesome career. I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. What we do each and every time at the end of the Boone Podcast is we kick it back to Dan Levy to get a question from the fans. Dan? Gentlemen, Tim, how are you? Hold up, bad. What's going on? All right, Tim, this one comes from Dave in Shortwood, and he wants to know this. Tony La Russa, the White Sox manager, your thoughts on him? And should the White Sox be the favorites to win the World Series this year? Well, I'm a big fan of Tony. Uh, he's been a great manager throughout his uh, his managerial career. Uh, one of the best that, uh, that ever did it. And uh, even though he might be one of the oldest managers uh, in baseball, I still think he knows as much about the game as, as anyone else. Uh, they had a, uh, had a good season last year. And I think, um, you know, they have some great young players uh, that are coming back this year. And uh, I feel like he's going to do a great job. And I think they should be the favorites. Uh, to win it, if they continue to, uh, you know, put out uh, a great pitching staff offensively and defensively, I think they're as good as anybody in baseball right now. Uh, so it's going to determine uh, how how well they do in, in their pitching staff, pitching staff, and and their relief pitching. Pitching is going to be paramount for them uh, because I think 
all the other ingredients they have. So uh, we'll see. But Tony LaRusso, I think, is a great fit for that team. And last question comes from Tim, and he lives in St. Louis, and he wants to know where does the nickname Rock come from? Well, Rock came from uh, uh, the minor leagues. Uh, uh, you know, as you heard, I was a football player, so I was a football player coming to, to play baseball. Uh, you know, thick legs, you know, built like, like a running back, uh, and they first started calling me rock man. You, you built like a rock man. And, uh, <laughs> when, <laughs> when I got to the big leagues, uh, you know, Dawson and Carter used to, used to, you know, kid me all the time. Uh, the reason why they call you rock is not because of your body. It's because of your hands you had at second base. So, <laughs> so, but that's not true. Uh, the football, um, analysis is, is the true part. <laughs> Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know that sound, don't you? It is mailbag time. Indeed. Dan. Indeed. And this one comes from me. (laughs) Oh, come on now. Bottom bottom of the barrel. Come on, Booner. This question is, this is what the people want to know that I am asking for them. During the winter of a strike, what is a player doing? Are they getting ready for a potential season? Or are they thinking about maybe they may have to take some time off? What is going through the mind of a player, especially during a deal like this? Well, I mean, there's been so much labor peace, you know, since 94. So what's that? 20, 27 years of labor peace. So most all the players nowadays, they've never been through anything like this before. They don't know what it's like to not have labor peace because they always have. Um Current player, modern day big leaguer, he's staying in shape year round. So that's not even an issue. He's getting his work in at whatever facility. So soon as they say go time and report, it's not like the 30, 40 years ago when you got to spring training and you worked your way through. These guys are coming to spring training as ready as they possibly can be. Now, the only thing we do need as big leaguers throughout the course of a winter is we need our reps. We need to get our timing down. And that only comes with uh, competing with a pitcher out in the mound in a game situation. So you do need that. But as far as, as preparing for the season, I'll guarantee you right now, uh, as soon as they say report in two days, uh, Every player now on a big league roster, they're ready to go. They're in shape, and and it's like they didn't miss a beat. I think uh, spring training is a little bit long, especially for the hitter. Uh, so I think you could could manage to start by March 1st and still start the season on time. Pitchers might be a little bit behind schedule, but once again, nowadays they're getting their work done behind the scenes wherever they live uh believe me they're coming to spring training in shape you need those real in-game reps but as long as you get them on the field by the first of march i think this season can start on time whether they'll do that do that or not no clue my my guess is as good as yours all right well that's gonna do it for the brett boone podcast my name is dan levy the technical director and producer of the Boom Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to it and also never miss an episode of the show while you're at it. Give it a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can follow him on social media at the Boone 29 My name is Dan Levy and you can follow me at Base on Air, B-A-S-S on Air. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.